Welcome to Transformers, the podcast about how business people and policymakers are creating a sustainable future. I'm your host, Kai Embren. In today's program, my guest is Joel Macor, chairman and co-founder of Greenpeace Group, a media and events company focusing at the intersection of business and the green economy. Joel is a remarkable storyteller. In the last 30 years, he demonstrated his ability to tell compelling stories that both inform and inspire business leaders toward profitable action. In 2012, he was awarded the Hutchins Medal by the American Society for Quality, and he was inducted into the Hall of Fame of the International Society of Sustainability Professionals. Joel is an author or co-author of many dozen books, including The Grand Strategy, published in 2016. Previous books include Strategies for the Green Economy, Beyond the Bottom Line, which uh, putting social responsibility to work for your business and the world, The E-Factor, The Bottom Line, Approach to Environmentally Responsible Business and the Green Consumer. He also writes Two Steps Forward, a popular blog on sustainable business, clean technology and green marketing. The Associated Press have called him the guru of green business practice. Welcome, Joel. Thank you, Kai. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you as a guest in Transformers podcast. What was the thinking behind Green Beast when you found it in 1991? Actually, I'm going to go back to 1989 and we'll work my way up there, but I'll make it quick. Yeah. Um, so in 1989, I, I was drafted or recruited to write the U.S. edition of a British best-selling paperback called The Green Consumer Guide. And so that came out, uh, my version came out in the U.S. in 1990, uh, and I was immediately... Uh, anointed as an, an expert on green consumer issues and had a weekly syndicated column and was spending a lot of time talking about the fact that every time you open your wallet, you cast a vote for or against the environment. And then I realized two things. One, there was no green business, green consumer movement in the US. And two, the companies I was being asked to come in and talk to about consumers were themselves dealing with a lot of issues around wastewater, toxics, um, you know, organic material, a whole range of things. And that was interesting to me. So in 1991, I launched a, a newsletter, a monthly newsletter called the Green Business Letter. And then when the web, World Wide Web came along a few years later, I created a website, greenbiz.com to, to collect all the information that uh, I thought had value, but wasn't necessarily being resourced anywhere. So it was called the Resource Center on Business, the Environment, and the bottom line. So uh, that website now is a company, 55 people strong, where we do uh, events, uh, media, and peer networks around the world. Now, well, you have under the years been a strong voice for transitional business into the field of sustainability. What uh, issues have dominated the agenda at Greenpeace under the years? Well, it changes constantly, as, as you know well, Kai. Um, you know, back uh, when I started, we were talking about pollution prevention. How do you stop the bad stuff from, you know, even if it's legal, uh, you know, how do you, uh, how do you reduce uh, pollution and emissions at the source? And then we got into the, this notion of, you know, corporate social responsibility. 
you know, imp uh, improving the bottom line uh, by doing, you know, doing well by doing good, as the expression went. And, and then it became, well, how do you grow the top line? How does sustainability become an engine for growth and innovation and new products and, and, and all of that? And that still is very much part of the, the conversation. But as we move forward, we're getting into this notion of, of, of actually how does business be a force for regeneration? How do we, uh, uh, how do we you know, does business actually create more value than it extracts from the planet? And, and so, you know, now we're talking about biodiversity, we're talking about a circular economy, we're talking about uh, how do we finance this uh, amazing transition that we're going to be going through for the next 30 or 40 or 50 or longer years to a decarbonized uh, society. Uh, and, and how do we make that uh, transition uh, just and, and equitable so that the benefits uh, accrue to everybody, uh, the rich and the poor, and everybody in between. So this conversation continues to move forward. Uh, and that's, for me, that's what's fun about it. I mean, interesting and stimulating. If I was just writing about pollution prevention for the past 30 years, I probably would have moved on to something else. But this topic becomes increasingly nuanced, complex, uh, synergistic, uh, and systemic. And, and that's been really uh, exciting to watch and, and I guess in effect chronicle. You are placed working from the perspective of US and um, you are the global active person. Can you see the difference of different types of issues that it changed depending on where you are? Well, it's remarkably the same. Uh, in uh, in September, uh, recently, we did a uh, uh, first ever meeting of, of something we've been doing in the U.S. for 15 years called the Green Biz Executive Network, which is a peer learning network for sustainability executives from large companies. In the U.S., we have about 100, a little over 100 members, uh, and we launched this uh, European version of it in Paris uh, in mid-September, and uh, and so we had uh, you know 16, 18 companies at the table for for two days, and the issues they're talking about are remarkably similar. You're talking about you know how does business become a force for good, all the way to you know just employee engagement and communicating this stuff to various stakeholders, and uh, you know circular economy certainly. So it, the, the the difference, Kai, is that in in Europe. Uh, a lot of this is more regulatory driven, uh, uh, where we don't have the regulatory pressures here in the United States. And so it's more voluntary, but voluntary to a point, because this is now being driven by investors, by customers, particularly B2B customers. Uh, and so this isn't simply a matter of companies just saying, we're going to start being green. They're, they're actually being forced to do this. And in many sectors and many companies, it's being driven by the ability to attract and retain talent, particularly in the tech world, where they're finding that that salary and benefits can only go so far. People want to work for a good company, however they define that. And so, uh, so we're at this moment where companies uh, all, all around the world, but uh, certainly here in the United States, are, are finding increasing pressures. Oh, and by the way, U.S. companies, the large ones that we focus on, are global companies. So, you know, many of the companies that we that we engage with uh, 
more than half their revenue comes from outside the United States. So they're looking at global uh, regulations, uh, global cultural norms, uh, societal expectations around the world. And, and so they're not simply uh, doing what they what you know they're forced to do by regulations or something else. And they realize that, you know, some of them at least, that you can't have a healthy company in an unhealthy environment. And, and, and so they're recognizing that this is really about the, the future of their, of their businesses. Although that's a tough thing to do in a world where quarterly returns or annual returns drive most decisions, it's much harder to think 10, 20, 30, 50 years out and you know it's hard, it's harder to think intergenerationally. Uh, in Asia, they do that a lot. In Japan, they have hundred-year plans. Uh, some companies, and so, uh, but that's not something that we do in the United States. And I don't get a sense that it's it, it's what's happening in Europe either. Do you see that some difference in in how companies and business leaders act uh, depending on if the, it is a domestic uh, national-based company or uh, multinational? It depends on the sector, Kai. Uh, in some sectors, uh, energy, for example, you have to be doing this stuff. Most of the energy companies, at least this, I'm thinking of the utilities and some of the some of the energy uh, producing com companies are domestically focused. They're not immune from this just because they're not global players. They have to be looking at decarbonizing their, their fuel mix, decarbonizing their output and so there's not necessarily a, a big difference in that score. But, you know, there are some sectors where, I don't know, retail, where the pressures may be different. Uh, and, and so there may be less focus on that uh, on a voluntary basis. Well, let's uh, look into a new survey. 80% of business leaders say more regulation is needed to deliver net zero. The yep. uh, survey was uh, commissioned by the University of Cambridge Institute for Sustainability Leadership. So, um, and it's covered UK, Germany, US, Brazil, Japan, India, and South Africa. What do you see? Where do you see the biggest challenge for a business leader of today? that have an ambition to be a net zero company? Well, in a word, change. Uh, change is hard for you and me and everybody listening to this and for uh, institutions and, and corporations. Um, I like to say that when it comes to change, we, we, we like the noun, but hate the verb. Uh, in other words, we like the idea of change, but actually changing is hard. And so, uh, you know, we're talking about reinventing commerce, reinventing, um, means of production, reinventing almost everything in business over the next uh, coming decades. And, and that doesn't uh, necessarily go down easily. Uh, there are a lot of companies that are doing quite well. Um, they don't really want to have to change. Uh, there's a lot of people in those companies who like their jobs and, and you know, they may protest or, or they're not necessarily in favor of changing. So that's the biggest problem is how do we change stuff and, and how do companies embrace change and see this as a, uh, as a moment that uh, is more of an opportunity than a threat. And, and we've done this before. I mean, when, you know, the, the World Wide Web came along or, or mobile phones or any number of things, it totally transformed how we operate and how we, and, and what we're able to do uh, and how we even think about what we're able to do. Um, and so uh, I, I think, that, you know, 
one of the big challenges, and this is true, Kai, at the consumer level or at the business level, is uh, that for sustainability to succeed, it needs to basically mean something better. For a consumer, it could be you know cheaper to buy, cheaper to operate, higher quality, better for my image, uh, uh, locally sourced, recyclable, any number of things that can make something better. Uh, for business, um, you know, we haven't necessarily framed this as, as a, a way to do business better. It's just a, it's now it's a threat. We have to account for stuff. We have to be more transparent about stuff, but those things don't necessarily, you know, feel better for companies, uh, for most companies at least. And so, you know, how does sustainability become an irresistible opportunity than uh, an irritating, you know, challenge? Uh, and, and I think we're, that's that for me is, uh, and then when you when it becomes this irresistible opportunity, the idea of change will be not effortless, but it will be much more compelling, and and companies will be willing to to lean into those kinds of changes much more easily. Mm. Uh, one of the issues that always coming up in this type of discussion is also the uh, the supply chain also that business need to have control over from the top to the bottom and bottom to the top. Uh, is that a big issue for today's discussion, the supply chain? Well, it, it is a big part of this, uh, and, and particularly as uh, companies are being required to to uh, provide scope three accounting. That's the, the accounting of things that they don't control in their supply chain. Um, uh, that's it, just un. That's just really, really hard uh, for companies to do because they don't control this. They can't get the information they need. A lot of their suppliers are very small. They don't have uh, full-time sustainability uh, heads or leads that do this. And, and so the supply chain is where uh, the overwhelming percentage of, of, of certainly the climate emissions, but also the overall natural capital impacts lie. It's really important, but I think most companies, big and small, struggle with how do you engage your supply chain and how do you get them to, first of all, be accountable and second of all, to then decarbonize and do, uh, do a lot of the things that, that need to, that, that the bigger company needs for them to do in order for the bigger company to achieve its own zero waste or zero carbon or net zero or some other kind of goal. So that's a, a huge challenge. And we don't even know how to define, you know, the supply chain, how many layers to go back uh, and, and then how much to account for. Um, I was talking to a, uh, an apparel company and they, they said one of their customers wanted to know, you know, what is the carbon footprint of a particular pair of shoes? Uh, and, uh, you know, coming from Asia, from a, a, a plant that, you know, a factory in, in Vietnam, I think. And, you know, it would be nice to know that, but they, they, they don't. And so what does that uh, footwear and apparel company do to try and please that customer? Um, this information just doesn't exist. And, and we need to make that, uh, figure out ways to make this uh, uh, make more sense. And, and then it's just issues of double counting. You know, if I, if I, uh, you know, you, you know what I'm talking about mm -hmm. here in terms of who gets to claim what benefit when somebody makes an improvement. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, it just, it spirals out from there, but it's an extremely uh, challenging piece of this.
if you look in the, your sort of experience of, of business leaders and, and the, the business you've been working with, is it anyone that you could name as a, that you admire that would be a good example to learn from? Well, you know, uh, I'm going to name some of the usual suspects here, like Paul Pullman when he was at Unilever or Yvonne yes. Chouinard at Patagonia. Uh, but, you know, a lot of the, the leaders, um, there, aren't, there aren't that many leaders. I'll, I'll tell you a, big, a quick story. Um, you may recall a, a, a guy named Ray Anderson. Uh, Ray yes, Anderson. Interface. Yeah, was, a, was the CEO of a, a billion dollar um, annual turnover uh, carpeting company called Interface. And, and he set out, this is about in the mid 90s to make his company the most sustainable company, taking nothing from the earth, a circular uh, uh, supply chain, taking back carpet, uh, you know, redesigning carpet so that you could separate the nylon from the backing and, and put both back into production. He gave probably 150 to 200 speeches a year about this. He was just relentlessly out there, not just talking to environmental groups, but talking to uh, big you know, trade associations, including some that probably didn't necessarily want to hear about this, particularly back then. So, you know, when I at the time when I was speaking in, in business schools and guest lecturing and things like that, I'd ask the class, um, name a CEO of a company, preferably an industrial company that is truly gets this and has yeah, embodied it throughout the organization and has set some bold and audacious goals. And, and the CEO is out there talking about this and not just at sustainability conferences. And a lot of hands would go up and they'd shout out Ray Anderson. And then I'd say, okay, name another. Crickets. And, and that's the part of the problem. And, and when they did name another, it was Paul Pullman. Paul, of course, is no longer in the business world. I mean, he has his own you know, ventures, but, the, but he's no longer running a big company. Uh, Yvonne Chouinard, you know, which is privately held, and, and he, he had, had long been a maverick. Um, you know, I think Apple is doing uh, good stuff. I think they're, you know, they've set some ambitious goals of mining nothing uh, for, to make their products. In other words, making uh, their uh, phones and computers and everything else from reclaimed materials, recycled materials, uh, or or green aluminum uh, and any number of other things. They've, you know, that's just one part of what they're doing. I think they have a real leadership. You know, Google uh, has, has always pushed in the envelope. They have uh, hundreds of initiatives that they've done, many of which were, at the time, were pretty bold and audacious. You know, I think some of the car companies are stepping into it. GM and Ford are beginning to get there, but they've got this huge... Uh, legacy of, of factories and, and customers and supply chains that they have to turn around. So no, I, I don't see a lot of leaders uh, that I can name who are just really on it. And, and I, think, I think the good news is that more and more CEOs understand this and understand the imperative of, of decarbonization, of circular supply chains, uh, of, of healthy materials, uh, not just recycled, but recyclable materials, but materials that do not have any toxic impacts. Uh, but it's not the dominant theme they think about, particularly right now where there's so many other things going on in the world. The question is, how bad do things have to get before they really see the light? And that's a scary question with them, probably a scary answer, but I think that's where we're at. It's just, there's that's, it's a high priority, but it's not high enough to really 
make the big moves to, in other words, to for companies to tra transform themselves at the scale, scope, and speed that's required. 80% of the business leaders say more regulation is needed to deliver net zero. Yeah. Um, what's your take on that? Uh, when you look at the political sector, are they sharp enough? Well, I mean, I understand why companies say that because they want a level playing field. They want to they want to use the same standards wherever they do business. And right now, every country and and in the United States, every state has a different set of policies or no policies at all, and that's really difficult for business. So. Uh, you know, in order to make the transformation, the transition that we need, companies need a sustained orderly path to get there. And so, uh, so I understand they want to, they want certainty The companies do not like uncertainty. They want certainty. So, and, and the regulations help create that kind of certainty. I mean, the political thing is, is really frustrating, certainly here in the United States where you have, uh, it just, it's politics. It has nothing to do with science. It doesn't even have anything to do with business. It's politics, pure and simple. And companies, uh, excuse me, uh, members of, of the US Congress are opposing things they once supported, things that were once at the bedrock of, of how they operated simply because they were proposed by, by the Democrats. Uh, and so the Republicans are not gonna like it. And, and, and that's just, that makes no sense. That, that, that's, we are, uh, and that's the challenging thing of this moment is that on the one hand, sustainable business has some significant tailwinds, uh, the Paris Agreement, the, the, the net zero imperative, just the, the ravages of climate change that companies are seeing that are affecting their own facilities and employees and customers. Uh, that's forcing them to move faster, but the, the headwinds are equally strong. The political pushback, uh, against sustainability in general and ESG and funds and finance in particular. And then, as I said, you know, they're just the, the ability to affect change uh, quickly enough. Those are all very big uh, headwinds. And so the plane is, is, is moving forward. Uh, it's definitely making progress, but it's nowhere near as fast as it could be or certainly should be. Many business leaders being very active and sort of communicate the sustainability issues hard in many years, but I haven't seen much of politics into the dialogue. Yeah, that's a big problem, Kai. I mean, if you were to draw a bell curve, you know, traditional bell curve, at one end you see the the a, a number of companies that have always been outspoken on this stuff and they're always leading the way. At the other end. Uh, the, the small end of the bell curve, you'll see the fossil fuel industry and others that are uh, perpetually foot dragging and trying to thwart change. But in the big fat middle is everybody else. The other big problem is that a lot of companies, including companies that uh, I would consider progressive or, or uh, you know, some of the better companies from a sustainability perspective, are members of associations that are lobbying heavily against the kinds of things these companies are doing. And so there's a, a, a significant and growing effort, uh, certainly here in the United States, to uh, get companies to uh, basically quit those associations or, or force those associations to be more in line with the companies that the progressive companies that are actually doing these things. 
And so that's another big, uh, big barrier that we need to overcome. Um, you know, how do, how do we, how do companies basically align their, their policy engagement, their lobbying, their government affairs with their sustainability goals and agenda? And, and that's uh, finding, we're learning that to be uh, much more difficult than anyone thought it would be. You wrote in your latest blog about the Force for Good report produced in collaboration with the UN and many of the world's leading financial institutions. What is the most important message for business leaders and politics in the report? What do you see in the report and the message that to be addressed? If you look at the, the crises we're facing, there's a, a sustainability or climate crisis. There's a biodiversity crisis, which is just now beginning to be recognized. Uh, that how much of the global economy, half of it, depends on, on nature services. So we've got climate crisis, the biodiversity crisis, and we also have a social justice crisis where there's inequit inequitable, uh, the, the gap between the rich and the poor are, are growing. And, and those three are all interconnected. Uh, and they all come back to uh, business profits first and foremost. They also require the same kinds of solutions, which is uh, early action, collective action, but individual responsibility, um, and uh, and and rethinking things that that we've been doing things a certain way for a long time. So I think uh, you know a lot of these these things we're facing uh, uh, have some common uh, mindsets, if not solution sets. And, and I think that that was what came out of, of that report is that we uh, you know, need to understand that. And, um, and then the other piece of this that I think is really interesting is, is the finance piece. Um, it's gonna take tens and tens and tens, if not hundreds of trillions of dollars over the next 20, 30, 40 years to get where we need to go to basically reinvent how we live, work, move, uh, shop, play, make things. If we reinvent all of those things in a decarbonized world, and uh, and that's going to take a lot of money to, uh, for, to invest in the infrastructure, to invest in the you know for companies to invest in themselves and their their new you know transforming into different kinds of of platforms, a new form of capitalism, really. And and I think um, you know until we get there. And that's one of the big challenges is that we're just tinkering at the margins. We're just, you know, we're, I hate to say this, rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. We're not really taking on the, the big, hard, ambitious goals. Um, and, and, and if they are, uh, to the extent companies are, they're, they're 2050 goals with not necessarily a lot of accountability between now and then, 28 years uh, from now. And, um, and I think that's 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 another big challenge here. And so I think this report sort of brought a lot of these things to, to light. Mm. But you also wrote in your latest blog, in a warming, wobbly world, there's a critical need for a new definitions of profit, returns, and shareholder value. Can you develop this a bit more for the listener? Well, I don't really have the answer to all these things uh, and what those look like, but I just know we need to rethink what we're doing. Um, uh, this is a time for, for much bolder action than anybody seems to be willing to take. 
And yeah, we're going to have to reinvent uh, our supply chains where they, where they, uh, where we're making things. There's a move now, and this is a result of the pandemic to a large extent of the reshoring of, of manufacturing. And I think that's a good thing. You know, the deglobalization of commerce that we've seen over the past 20 or 30 years. Um, and, uh, but the business models have to change. You know, it, it's no longer, uh, you know, just the responsibility of the buyer of a product to determine what go, what happens to it at the end of its useful life. Companies are recognizing two things. One, that they have a responsibility to design something uh, and manufacture something that itself it can be repaired, refurbished, reused, uh, recycled, dematerialized, whatever it is. Uh, but it also that's an opportunity for, for these companies. Yeah, they don't. They never thought of the materials they used uh, as assets. Those are just a cost of doing business. And now there's a move to say, okay, well, those are you know those those are valuable things. I mean, look at what we're going through right now with the uh, rare earths uh, and the lithium and other things that that are going into batteries and and electronics in general, uh, electric vehicles and, and solar and wind and everything else. We don't have enough of those, and so now there's a move to reclaim those from old products, for example. So how do we you know, set that up from the beginning is how do we design things that can be taken back? How do we re rethink about the buyer-seller relationship? Maybe they're not buying anything, maybe they're renting a service. Uh, and so business models that got us here aren't necessarily the ones that are gonna get us where we need to go. Right. And, and I don't think that realization has set in much. So no, I don't have the answer. What is the business model? What does the capitalism look like 20 years from now? Pretty sure it's gonna be different. Pretty sure we're gonna see some significant changes, but I, 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 it's, it's above my pay grade to be able to say exactly what those are gonna be. Maybe we should listen to the business leader who articulate the, the values of business of today and tomorrow. And uh, but as you've been working with Greenbiz, and uh, how well does business leader articulate and communicate the SDGs and the ESGs issues uh, to its shareholders and its stakeholders? Yeah, I mean, it depends who, you, who you're thinking of when you say business leaders. If you're talking about the sustainability executives or some others in the company or even the CFO versus the CEO, uh, I don't know that so many CEOs are, are, are understanding and appreciating this, but, um, you know, I think uh, we have, a, have a, uh, as I said, a membership group of sustainability officers from very big companies. I mean, it's Google, Microsoft, Apple. We have railroads, airlines, media networks. Uh, automakers, uh, fast food companies, uh, apparel and footwork, on and on. They get this stuff and they understand the opportunity in front of them. They also understand the stakes that business is facing if we don't get things right. One of the problems, Kai, is that the people who are leading companies now, whether it's a CEO or C-suite or a, a, a level or two down, are probably not going to be there in, at the end of this decade, let alone in 2050, obviously. Uh, and so the accountability that's required of them is minimal. Uh, and, uh, and so they're, they're, they fall back on what, they, what businesses always, business leaders have always been uh, rewarded for, which is profits. And, and so uh, how do you maximize profits? After all, that's written in the fiduciary responsibility of, of, of boards of directors uh, and, 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 uh, and C-suite executives to, on behalf of their, their investors, they have to maximize profit. Um, and that's sort of, you know, you know what, 
how do we think about profit differently as, as, as you stated before, as I wrote in that piece you're referring to, you know, how do, you know, what are the kinds of returns is, you know, there's a, uh, at, at minimum, how do we, how do we measure the return on sustainability investments? And there's some models for that. There's one out of a, a New York university, NYU Stern school of business uh, that's uh, called Rosie, the return on sustainability investment. It's a framework framework that a number of companies are using, but you know, that those are the, those are all uh, small things uh, that it's not yet at all, even close to the mainstream. And so we have a lot of work to do to, to get to the point where we can even understand and the problem and have a shared understanding of the problem enough that we can start to redefine you know, how do we rethink profit or returns or shareholder value? You think that businesses and business leaders not are very good to articulate the, and communicate these value-based issues or? They, they, they are at the high level. We care about people and the planet. Uh, we, we watch out for our workers and the workers of the companies we do business with. We have set goals to reduce our climate impact. We're committed to being, uh, to getting to more circular models or detoxifying some of the ingredients. I mean, they get it because they because they're fed those bullet bullet points by their communications departments. Uh, but I don't know how much they really get it at a at a visceral level. I don't know how much they really uh, understand the urgency, and I don't know uh, that, that they understand uh, how they how they balance that urgency with what uh, with what shareholders and boards of directors are demanding from them. And so, uh, you know, they can talk the talk, but the walk the walk is not so much. Uh, so, that's a, it's a, so it's a gap to, here. So do they need to be better to walk? Well, they need to understand this stuff and they need, you know, the, the only way they, they learn is from their peers. Uh, and so, you know, I could write a million things and you could do a million podcasts and we can all, you know, state it a thousand and a million times that what needs to be done, but they learn from, from their fellow CEOs and, and, you know, where are those conversations happening? I mean, they happen once in a while at climate week or Davos or, or at COP. Uh, but again, it's not that deep of a level and it's not at the systemic level or the sense of urgency that we need. So no, uh, CEOs uh, just aren't really leading the charge in the way that I think you and I would hope. What is your advice to the young generation of business leaders that have to take on board new challenges that we in yours and my generation never had in our minds when we built our business models? I don't think I need to tell them what the problems are. I think they understand that. Uh, I think they, uh, so many of them want to be part of the solution. And uh, at least according to surveys, they all want to work for good companies. And from the company's perspective, we hear that a lot, that people... Uh, you know, talk, ask questions about sustainability, job interviewees, uh, re potential recruits, ask about sustainability, which they never asked about before. Um, and so, uh, but, but my, you know, my advice to, to young people, they, I, I get a lot of calls and emails and social media requests and things from people who want to pick my brain. I'm sure you do too, Kai, uh, uh, young people who want to, you know, get into sustainability and not just young people, also mid-career uh, job changers who want to, you know, 
deploy their talents and expertise and passions towards sustainability. And you know, they say, well, how do I get a job in sustainability? What do I need to do? What do I need to study? What certifications do I need? And I say, you know, it's, it's in some ways the wrong question. Um, it's, it, it's not so much that um, uh, the sustainability is too important to be left to sustainability departments. And, and what sustainability departments in companies do increasingly is they, they pushed out the, uh, the responsibility into the various brands and facilities and operations, supply chain, marketing, communications, finance, HR, uh, customer relations, and, and government relations, investor relations. And so it's the role of a sustainability person to really make that happen. So my advice to them is go learn something learn finance, learn uh, international trade, learn marketing and communications, uh, learn something, and then uh, go get a job in that field and bring your, your, your green passions, your sustainable passions to that job. Uh, and I think that's uh, because we're getting to a point, and this, is, this has become a sort of a cliche, but it's, it's, it's you know, becoming increasingly true that every job could be a climate job. And you know, what does that look like? And I don't think there's enough creativity on a part of, a, and, and, and there's not enough creativity because there's, they don't have the experience of the life lived experience or the worldview that say you and I have to know how do you be a sustainability champion in, uh, in a manufacturing, in a supply chain department. Um, and, and, and so I think that's the interesting part of this. Uh, you know, there's not that many jobs in sustainability. There's a lot more than there used to be. And my LinkedIn feed is just filled with, you know, we're, we're, we're announcing we're hiring two people, five people, 10 people, the big consulting firms, the PWCs and Deloitte's and, and, and all the others are, are just hiring thousands and thousands of, of people with some sustainability or ESG experience. Um, uh, but there's not that many jobs in sustainability departments inside big companies. And so you got to go, you got to look elsewhere in those same companies to think, where can I uh, make an impact? Um, and that's not so easy to do if you're 22 or 25 years old to even be able to ask that question. But I think we need that those of us who've been around and you know, some of the elders like me, and I'm not sure you're old enough to be an elder yet, uh, Kai, but uh, the, you know, need to be working with them and helping them and counseling them so that they maybe understand the opportunities uh, in a much in a much more uh, much uh, more specific way than they may think about at a very high level i want to do something green let that be the final word from from us today joel it's my pleasure kai and i look forward to continuing the conversation as well I'm Kai Embren. Follow me on Twitter and LinkedIn, where I will be announcing the future guests to this podcast. And you can expect about two programs a month. And each guest has a unique story of making business and society sustainable. So find out more. Visit my homepage, kaiembren.org. Thank you for listening.